0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor, to be with you forever He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Anybody watch Arrival? Yeah? Amy Adams? Man, come on. Has she won an Academy Award yet? Yeah, right? Doesn't that seem like a mistake? We should fix that. Okay, if you haven't seen it, Amy Adams plays Louise Banks, who's this linguistics genius. And she gets called in by, you know, whatever deep state government agency to help them with this very particular problem, which is there are 12 alien spaceships that have planted themselves around the globe. And we don't know what they want. We don't know why they're here. We don't know if they're friendly. We don't know anything, because we can't communicate with them. And so they bring in Louise as a linguistics expert to try and figure out what it is that they want, who they are, what they're doing here. And if you've seen the movie, you remember they have these this way of communicating through logograms. They they sort of do these ink splatters that look sort of like Enso circles. And it's it's a way of using language in a nonlinear way is what Louise figures out. Is that instead of like how I'm talking right now, one word after another to try to make some sort of sense in a sentence, they're able to say an entire idea at the same time. And because she spends so much time immersed in their language that moves outside of the regular rules of time, Louise herself begins to experience time in a non-linear way, right? Suddenly she's in the future, and then she's back in the past, and then in the present. And at first you think it's flashbacks, but it's actually her experiencing time outside of time. Now I'll spare you with the sci-fi mumbo-jumbo, it is a beautiful film and it's worth watching. But one of the things that's fascinating to me about the storytelling in our culture is that there's really two main stories that we've become obsessed with in popular culture right now. Most of our popular films and books and songs and all that are either locked in a material world Without any guiding meta narrative, right? There, there is no larger story within which we place ourselves. There's nothing to guide our moral choices other than individual happiness. If it makes you happy, that's being true to yourself, just do it. And if it doesn't, well, then that would be wrong, right? But there's nothing outside of our own individual ideas of happiness. And then there are these other stories. These fanciful tales of humanity being contacted by life forms from the outside, right? And that contact begins to bring change, and along with it, it brings its own form of moral meaning-making. But what's fascinating is almost always these outside visitors have a flaw. Even in arrival, we're told the reason these aliens are here, even though they seem so advanced beyond our own technology is because they're going to need our help at some point in the future. All of which is to say, we have essentially locked God out of our stories. But our hunger for him has not left us. As the famous first line in Julian Barnes' great novel says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Right? This is part of our location. We live in a world that doesn't believe in God and yet still misses Him. This is part of what it means to live in a city like Portland. But there's another layer to our topographical map, one that I think helps orient us to our location in a much better way than just recognizing that we live in a world that no longer believes in God, right? And that layer is that we are in the season of Easter, still. We are in the great 50 days when we celebrate the powerful bodily resurrection of Christ in history, an event that if you have eyes to see it, is like light dawning upon people that have been living in darkness. And we're pushing toward another pair of feast days in the church's year. Ascension and Pentecost when we will celebrate that Christ has ascended bodily to the Father's right hand where he intercedes for us ceaselessly and that he has sent the Holy Spirit to us as you will celebrate in a few weeks in Pentecost and as we heard so beautifully in our gospel lesson. Our scripture lessons this evening as they so often do work as a chorus They're harmonizing one another. And while they they have a lot to do with the actions that should come from being a spirit-indwelt community, and there are so many things that we could say about what we need to be doing as a community, as St. John enjoins us, right? There's something a little bit below the surface of that that I want to get to this evening because I think it's really, really important to get down into the soil before we try to just start picking the fruit. What we see in our lessons this evening, in this harmony, is Christ's promise of the Spirit to his disciples in St. John's Gospel. We see the story of St. Philip being carried along by the Spirit to bring the word and sacraments of the Gospel to someone hungry for God. And in St. John's epistle, we hear that it is by the Spirit that we have knowledge of Christ's abiding presence in us. It is the Spirit who gives us that knowledge. As Louise was moved into a new experience of time by studying the language of her alien visitors, so we as the Spirit-indwelt community will experience time and indeed all of life in a different way if we attend to the Word of the Spirit and the Spirit of the Word. He will radically reorient everything about our lives if we let him. What's really fascinating about the sort of explosions that happen in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, is that the Jewish people were, for the most part, expecting resurrection in some sense. They were looking for the day when God's spirit would be poured out upon all people, but they believed that it would come to pass on the last day, at the very end, on the great and terrible day of God's judgment, when all of the nations of the earth would be called to account and Israel would be vindicated as God's chosen people. That's when resurrection happens. That's when the spirit comes down. But when Saul encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and his life is completely changed and totally reoriented, it is because he has encountered something that belongs in the future but has been pulled back into his present. To say that resurrection has begun and the Spirit has been given, which is something we say all the time, right, in church, is to say that the future has crashed onto the shoreline of the present. Now, one of the ways we have of talking about this here is to say that the church is an eschatological community. To be an eschatological community, right, a community of the eschaton, the the end time, the last days, is to be rooted in an experience now of that which is yet to come. We have an experience here and now of something that the world is awaiting in the future. Think back to when Christ went around preaching the gospel at the beginning of his ministry. What did he declare? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God has drawn near. The eschaton, the last day, the new heavens and the new earth is when God's kingdom will finally be all in all and the knowledge of God will cover the world as the waters cover the sea. It will be everything. The future that the world awaits is the future of God's kingdom. That's where we're headed. But the church, as Father Alexander Schmemann so often said, the church is a sacrament of that kingdom. It is in the church In her life of daily prayer, her acts of service and love to God and neighbor, in the proclamation of the word, in the sacraments, and most primarily on display in the Eucharist liturgy, the very thing that we're doing right now, it is in all of this that the church is an epiphany of God's kingdom. It's an unveiling. It's a light bulb flashing in the darkness. It's a city set on a hill, illuminated by the light of Christ and animated by the breath of the Spirit. And so I have to remind us, the foreignness of the liturgy isn't due to a fetishization of the past. We are not looking back to some golden age when everything in the world was so much better because people went to church, etc. We're not doing this because we are religious Luddites, right? Who are afraid of advancement. No, the foreignness of the liturgy is rooted in the fact that we are here learning a language from another world. We are being taught the language of heaven, the language of God's kingdom. You've no doubt heard that liturgy means the work of the people, right? You guys know that? At a deeper level, the idea of liturgia, where we get this word liturgy, is a work of public service. It's a work done by a smaller group of people to publicly benefit a larger group of people, right? So the the Parks Department of Rome back in the day, they performed liturgia. They were doing work in the city to benefit a larger group of people. So we could say then that the church works out her liturgy, this very thing that we're doing here and now on behalf of the world. But here's the clincher. What is so important to recognize is that this work isn't something that the church comes up with on her own, but is rather a continuation and a mirror of the liturgy of Christ in heaven. This is what the author to the Hebrews says quite literally. Christ is literally the liturgist in the sanctuary. He's the one who serves in the sanctuary. That's what that word is. He's the liturgist who is building up the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. This is what Christ is doing at his Father's side even now. And so here we are. We're a small band. We've only been around for a couple of years. We're in Portland. If you ask anybody in South Carolina if there's Christians in Portland, they'll tell you, no way, man. And yet, what are we doing? What is actually happening around us in this moment? David Fagerberg, who's another liturgical theologian, says that this liturgia, this liturgy, this work of Christ and his church on behalf of the world, is the work of preparing humanity for the eschatological communion at the heavenly banquet. Do you see? What we are doing now is what the world will one day become. We are practicing in order to prepare the entire world for the banquet at the wedding feast of the Lamb when Christ is all in all. And I think this leads to a very important distinction about what is going on here that will actually help us go about doing those works of service and charity in the world. If you think of the gathered church as primarily a time to sort of get filled up and go out and spend yourself, or a time primarily of learning or primarily of being reminded about the things that Christ taught and did, then going to church can easily become simply another activity in your life, right? I was leading liturgy at a sister church of ours this morning up in Washington, and I'll share this life hack with you as well. If you are just here to be reminded of what Jesus has done. There's a much easier way to do that. You could put it in your phone, it'll pop up every morning. Jesus died, Jesus resurrected, Jesus ascended, right? Maybe that's actually not a bad idea, but if that's why we're here, then this is kind of a bit of a waste of time. Now, we are remembering, we are told to remember, and we are told to keep remembering, but it's not just Remembering. In fact, if you understand that it is here where the Spirit is teaching us the language of the Word and that we are brought into the eternal present of God, right? Just like Louise, we are being morphed out of our ability to tell time in this place. And we are brought into God's eternal present. And so it's here that we truly experience the things that we proclaim. It's not just that Christ died and resurrected 2,000 years ago. We are experiencing him now, in this moment, truly. Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all of that happens in our midst as we encounter him in his eternal present. And it's then that we can begin to understand that this work of liturgy is an expression of the Spirit who enlivens us in baptism by uniting us to Christ in his death so that we might live in his resurrection life. And he will actually live in us. That's what we're participating in. That's why we say that it's here around the altar, that we become who we are. Which is a very paradoxical way of, of saying things, but it's, it's so true and there's no other way to say it. If you have been baptized into Christ, then you are part of his mystical body and this is the place where we are knit together and taught to live as people of the future. It's here that we become who we are in Christ by conspiring with the Spirit, right? Conspiring, breathing together, just as Christ breathed out the Spirit on his disciples at the end of John's Gospel. So we have had the Spirit breathed into our lives in baptism through faith and repentance, and we inhale that Spirit and we exhale back out in proclamation, in word and sacrament and acts of mercy, the incomprehensible love of God. That's what it means to live as a Christian. All of which means that being an eschatological community in this sense is far more difficult than if I just had a list of things for us to do. And it's for that exact reason. Because we live in a world that is run by outcome. The liturgy cuts deeply against the grain of the world, not because it's ancient, but because it's such a waste of time. We live in a world that is obsessed with productivity. Everything is a hack. Do it better. Get more out of it, right? Everything is a method of self-improvement or an increase in corporate profits. This is the world in which we live. But being a community of the Spirit entails a posture of self-forgetfulness. It is to cease our preoccupation with productivity and outcome and self, and instead turn our gaze upon the majesty and glory of God. Those of you that are married, does it work when you turn your marriage into a productivity lab? No. And if you think it does, let's talk. (laughs) You might be missing something. Romano Guardini makes this distinction by talking about how much our world thinks in terms of a gymnasium, right? Each piece of equipment, each movement of the gym is calculated. The gym rats go in there with a purpose. They know which machines they're going to use and what sort of outcome they expect to get from it. Everything is purposeful, it's calculated, it's geared toward outcome. It is, in a word, utilitarian, right? You go in to get the outcome you want. But Guardini goes on to say that the gathering of the church is not like going to a gym. It is not a workout where every little thing has a specific purpose that's designed to bring an outcome to your life. It is rather that the liturgy is like a forest. And in a forest, not everything can be immediately accounted for in terms of production value and utility. I recently been made aware of this phenomenon called shinrin-yoku. Have you guys heard of this? I realized this morning uh, when I translated it for the group, uh, it sounds a little weird, so I'll explain in a moment. It's not as bad as it sounds. It's Japanese, it's roughly translated as forest bathing. Everyone's clothed, all right? Everyone keeps their clothes on. But the idea is that you just sort of bathe yourself in the forest. You go out into the woods, you take time, you breathe, and you notice things. Gordini says that this is what the liturgy of the church is like. To an outsider, it may seem utterly useless, even to an insider. There is no tangible outcome. There is no immediate product, and that is exactly the point. Because everything that we're doing here is all about encounter. And this is the soil that simply must be packed in around the tree of our life together if we are to bear the sort of fruit that St. John is talking about in his epistle. We are not a factory farm just producing fruit for the sake of having fruit. That's not what it is. We are here to encounter the living God being drawn in by the Spirit in love, that same Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts, and so we are being drawn upward by the Spirit toward the Father through the Son. That's it. Being an eschatological community, of course, has so many repercussions, it will take another 2,000 years of sermons and theological reflection to tease out all of the implications for how we should be living lives of service to our neighbors. Being Christ's mystical body on earth involves all sorts of acts of charity toward those around us, but we must first do the hard work of getting lost in the forest of God's glory on display for us as his mystical body gathers around his altar. We must be steeped in the language of the Spirit whispered again to us in the Eucharist so that we can truly be people from the future, living in love and service in the present. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.